Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. And I love that abundance and that busyness. And it's a bit like a city. That busyness gives me an energy that without that, if I would say no and I just did one project at a time, I just, I just, I just kind of go into oblivion. I just go into this kind of this depth of um, questioning and, and uh, analysis of one thing. And all these other projects, all these other interactions are actually uh, enhancing the, each, of the, each of every one of those projects we're working on. Well, I'm glad you finally said yes to, uh, to hanging out with me, Vince. Uh, I'm talking, if you haven't already guessed, to Vince Frost, who is the world-famous and uh, heavily awarded designer. Uh, he's the founder of Frost Creative, uh, which has a number of different units, Frost Design uh, being the original, which you started in London uh, in, in the mid-90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've known Vince for almost a decade now. Uh, because we worked together on uh, a book we did together, Futuretainment, mm-hmm. uh, many, many years ago. Uh, Vince, it's good to see you. It's great to see you too, Mike. It's been a long time. <laughs> Has been a long time. And it's Frost Collective, not Frost Creative, but anyways. There is quite a lot of things in your collection now. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a lot of change happening. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the things that has always really interested me, um, and I've always... You know, I've always had a, had a deep passion for typography and design and architecture. Was the unique perspective that designers seem to have on the world. It, mm. It's almost like uh, either the way you're born or the way you're trained or the way you just live. You see the world very differently to, to normal people. Uh, could you un- unpack that a little? Is that, yeah, is that I mean, something you've ex- you, you believe is true? Yeah, probably. I mean, I, th- I think that um, likewise, I was very inspired when I first met you in terms of you know, you being a futurist and working on futuretainment, for example, was that you saw things way ahead of everybody else. You were an expert in what's to come. And for a lot of people, they're kind of just living day to day and not um, fully engaging in or aware of what's about to hit them, you know, in two years, five years, 10 years time. Um, what's the trends elsewhere in the world? A lot of people are in their own bubble. And I think a lot of designers are in their own bubble in a lot of ways as well. I guess I've always been determined to try to make the world a better place. And in a way, uh, I'm, my primary focus is to help people uh, in whatever way I can. And um, Well, you, you wrote this great book called Design Your Life, which was essentially about applying design principles to your life. Yeah. Um, what, 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 were some of the, what were some of the ones that really stood out for you in terms of you know, applying that to how people live? Well, I think that we, again, you know, people often are in a bubble, uh, often busy in very busy lives with, uh, you know, work, families, etc. And, you know, we're, I think I was reading the day somewhere or I was on the radio saying that our, our body's natural state is a state of well-being. And it seems that we constantly, you know, drink or we're stressed or we eat the wrong foods or we don't exercise, do all the things that kind of go against that. And our body is in this constant state of trying to repair itself, trying to bring it back to this, the sense of, you know, state of well-being. And it's probably not as hard as we make it in life. We kind of, in a way, a lot of us in this kind of a self-destruct kind of mode, you know, because <laughs> we're trying to escape, we're trying to um, uh, remove ourselves from, you know, whatever's going on in our lives. 
and and of course you know there's a lot of you know advertising and, and promotion and environments that are that are about seducing us to you know consume or partake in things that aren't naturally aren't are good for their bank uh, bank balance but not good for um, us as human beings we're one big filter and you know that's what we're kind of in the process of constantly filtering out toxins etc so I, I kind of felt that over time I shifted from kind of extremes I'd be focused 100% on being healthy and, and well and other times I'd be self-destructive and focusing on purely on my clients or on problems and get myself into this kind of negative space that was um, not very healthy for me you know so I'd hit rock bottom and then I'd work on how do I bounce back how do I get back into a good state of kind of all-round well-being equilibrium almost. yeah exactly and then that kind of affected my my, my role as a dad uh, my work environment the people I interacted with and in, in, in you know in the street etc um, you're a different person when you're in a in a more kind of a better state of mind. And, and, you know. uh, well, what is a design stance in the in the sense of when a designer encounters a problem, how do they look at it differently to someone who hasn't had that training? Well, I think the fact that I'm trying to think about that, I think it's, it's you know that there's a solution. You know that you know there is a, a task. There was something to be done. There was a, there's a need. There's a brief. There's a timeline, and a budget potentially. Um, and you know through design, through thinking about it, analyzing it, trying stuff, that you will you will eventually find your way to create a an outcome that works, that connects with others. And it's something that, I mean, as soon as you kind of discover it, you know, through design school. You just you know, struggle with it for a bit, but then once you get it, you, you just you just feel this enormous rush of energy and hmm. excitement around that buzz of, you know, having a, a tough problem to solve, and then knowing that you're going to find a solution. And it used to be very much kind of based on the, um, you know, when I was art school in the kind of the ninth, what was it, late eighties. Um, <laughs> that can be redacted. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> was it was very much about a career about individuals you know the, the students in the class being individually briefed as a, as a well briefed as a class of 30 of us but each of us had to go away and solve the problem so it was very competitive very kind of very much about the individual you know coming up with solutions and it's interesting to see over the years how that shifted to becoming much more about co-creation about multiple people on a task about different perspectives, different skill sets, different capabilities, insights, etc., that make it, I would say, make it better, a better solution. Is there a solution? I mean, is, 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 a, slu- is a solution the end point of a design problem? Um, probably not. The, yeah, yeah, obviously, that's double, you, you're asking me a double question there. But I mean, it's, it's, you know the answer is that no, it's just the beginning. Hmm. You know, just to start and begin to tackle that, to think about it, gets the project on on a journey and you know I very much believed like even regarding regarding brands and projects today kind of they're not they used to have kind of a beginning and end and now they're kind of just living the living entities are living brands are living uh, opportunities to continually check in with and evolve uh, yeah as time goes on which is interesting well this is particularly important when you know companies are coming to design firms not just for a an aesthetic artifact mm-hmm. but for as much help with 
design thinking or what they now you know what people call human-centered design yeah. uh, because uh, if anything in this world we're moving to where you're having greater levels of automation of everyday transactional things is that ability for all leaders in the company to to have that approach to solving problems mm-hmm. is probably going to be more important no yeah, i think it is and I, th- I think that i look at that today i had a meeting today with an overview of some of the projects we're working on and you still see that as the the, the, the clients have um uh, you know, still have their goals and their ambitions to achieve X, and they come to us thinking that we make things look nicer. <laughs> and and, that, and that's just kind of that's like a you know, I'm being facetious, I guess. But but there are still some that are are on on face value. They they don't know any alternative way of doing that. Traditionally, they'd go to a design company to help solve their problems to help create some kind of, you know, the brand or, or product or um, something that they, they need help with. Now, obviously today, it's, 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 you can do that in so many different ways. And the more uh, richness of technology and insights and, um, you know, as I say, AI and, you know, algorithms and data, etc. there's a richness there that a lot of companies still aren't even uh, embracing. Or utilizing yeah and so we're kind of getting away with it still for a bit you know if I'm to be brutally honest yeah I think there's a there's a wave about to hit us massively that's going to transform our industry in, into a situation of being unrecognizable I mean we could all be obliterated by this you know? it's happening in architecture a little bit I mean the, you've seen the rise of parametric design or computational design where mm. you have these systems that generate thousands of potential design solutions and the role of the architects more about working with a client to understand the assumptions and parameters it's not about creating the one final look yeah well it's what i mean with a lot of designers that we have i mean we've grown now to to kind of a more diverse um uh, team so it's not they're not all designers you know it's a lot of strategists behavioral behavioral economics people uh, user experience, customer experience, strategies, etc. So there's a real richness of diverse talent and, and um, uh, inputs. But the designers are often kind of seen as just being craftspeople. Originally, a lot of designers were kind yeah. of like you do it because you love the craft. I'm not to say the craft isn't important. It's the craft is what you see. It's how you execute the ideas. And what, what the world sees, what they interact with, like your book, or like my book, or like a, a physical space or whatever, they're interacting with something that exists in the real world. And, and, and how you get to that point of existence is now interesting because you know you, what is now real, what is done by a robot, what is done through uh, 20 people or 100 people or mass um, engagement versus the one-off craftsperson, which was... In a way, the kind of I guess the design guru was the the go-to person to solve these problems originally. The, the master artisan. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, and kind of they were a bit of an art. They were an artist versus now you were actually a business person. It's more become much more. Well, especially if the, the the object is actually not an object at all, but an experience. Yeah, exactly. And and uh, a lot of the mechanics of solving the problem are still the same, but the final artifact is not something tangible. No, that's exactly right. Now, I, I, we do a lot of work in the property sector, for example, and I've been looking at this and going, guys, we, 
this is interesting, mm. I think. <laughs> Sorry, bear with me. <laughs> you might not find it interesting. But I'm fascinated by this. Is that a developer who will spend half of uh, 500 million to a billion, $3 billion on a development, will come to us after they worked out who they're going to work with, architect, they bought the land, mm. you know, working on the DA, etc. They come to us and they say, right, you guys, we, we're going to do a pitch out there to work out which three design companies we're going to get to pitch on this, and we're going to choose one who has the best ideas. And we come back with our, our approach, our ideas, etc. And then what happens is that if we win the job, they will say, okay, we need a strategic positioning of this site. We need to post-rationalize the site, the architecture, the environment. What is unique about this? Because <laughs> we don't know. Um, uh, we, we need a name. We need a brand, we need, uh, we need a website, we need a brochure, we need you know display suite, hoardings, all the stuff. We need to help you to help us bring it to life. And then, once we've done that, they'll start advertising it and it goes to the market. And then the, we're trying to appeal to you know the customer who we don't necessarily know who it is at the time. And then we want to get, get people to buy into this development. You know, 300 apartments, 500 apartments, 1,000 apartments, whatever it might be. There's a lot of money at stake, huge amount of money at stake here. And of course, with a, a booming economy and the great demand, you could, you could do anything and it would probably um, sell, you know. But what I'm interested in is the shifting from that to shifting to understanding who those 300 people are going to buy those apartments, who they are now, before I've even worked out what site I'm going to buy or what location or what architect or right. how I'm going to communicate that. Because in a way, I think we need, to, and we can do that. I mean, there's enough data and information out there to know what people are looking so for you, in a certain vicinity. So if you, could, if you can actually use design principles to frame the problem correctly up front. Yeah. And let well, that then drive everything else. Or, or, what's, or look at the data and work out what's the most common uh, location, what's the common number of apartments, what's the common uh, budget, etc. What are people, what's the real information of what they're looking for, what they really, really want? You know, instead of kind of design it and build it and they will come and it's all kind of like non-personalized it's all kind of like done for a generic person you know it's, it's not done for the person who ends up buying that place so i'm fascinated by that and not only fascinated by that I'm fascinated by how that approach can change the way that we work on a daily basis in any single project so for example naming of a business or you know what's what's available i mean we come up with these concepts of naming a, a place or a, or a business a new startup etc and we think that that's a great name and we work on our rationalization of why this is a great name and then they go oh i like that one here's our long list here's our short list here's the ones we recommend okay i love that now can you can we go and search to see if that's actually anyone else using it is there a conflict is there a trademark and we go through the whole process of kind of you know, getting them over the line with something we believe is right, and then we go to the process of going, looking at data. Can we actually do it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And is that name actually? What I'm more interested in is like, what's the right name? Like, what's the name that's available that resonates, you know, with the most highest number of of, of connections out there? Not something that's kind of like. Wow, great name, great presentation, great logo that we created. And I don't want to kind of undermine my own business. No, but, but you're, but, you're right. Because we're successful at doing it despite that. But I want to be uber successful at that by minimizing any kind of 
risk of mistake or even 1% less effectiveness than, than what but we part can of do this, through data. Part of this transformation you're talking about is something that I've seen in a lot of different industries because I think a lot of people are seeing that if you really believe in disruption and transformation, you don't just take your traditional business and add a website to it, right? Mm-hmm. Digital processes. You, yeah. you start with a clean sheet of paper and go, what's the, what's the right way to do this? But, you know, this not only requires your clients to change, it probably requires your own people to change. It does. So when you're interviewing or you think you're going to interview someone for your organization now in the next couple of years, what are the kinds of things that you think you now need to look for that are consistent with that way of thinking? Because, I mean, it's not like you can just ask to see their, their design portfolio, right? Yeah, I want mean, to see if how, um, how determined they are at engaging with, with new technologies, uh, mm-hmm. new ways of thinking. I want to, I want to, I want to hunger there that, that's kind of relentlessly looking at uh, uh, new ways or current ways of, of, of utilizing the information that's at our hands. And there is a huge amount available now, of course. I want to notice if they can hover above the ground, you know, you know <laughs> drone type people that are like, I don't know, just like, People who embrace embracing the the world that we're in today, not not people who are kind of homesick for the world that we were. Right. You know. So it's it's, it's not really the skills as much a mindset. Yeah. Than anything else. It is. I think I think anyone's capable of doing anything if they put their mind to it. You know. Mm. But they really, they really, you really want to buy into that deep down desire, and you can't make people have that desire. You can't really tell people. You just you just basically connect with people who have that. Have that something special. It's a challenge. You know. I mean, I, I, one of the things that drew me to you originally, when I, when, I, when I before we met, was I'm a real, I'm very nostalgic about typography. I love typography, yeah. and, and this was something you always were brilliant at. I, t- you, I tried to. I tried. I loved it. I love typography. Well, I mean, is that still relevant? I mean, I mean, is is yeah. I mean, it's communication and it's it's um, connection. It's uh, it's not nostalgia. Well, I mean, I guess you know, like when I was playing around with letterpress, a lot of letterpress. That's quite nostalgic, just because of the, it was the the traditional form of printing and the each each pole each each typeface had its own inherent kind of characteristics because it was made out of wood yeah um and the kind of the grain bad printing was the thing that i liked which is actually when the grain was like showing through onto the onto the page but there is yeah, a nostalgia but there was kind of a there's a, a mood there's a feeling that that kind of evokes and it's not necessarily a nostalgic feeling but it kind of it's a, i guess it's a disruption from perfection disruption from the bold black font. It's actually something that has, oh, that's something has more personality. It's not the, it's not the shape of the letter. It's actually the, the grain within right. it, you know, and the light and dark and the shades that are kind of, I guess your point is that it's, it's not the medium that determines nostalgic thinking. It's your approach to problem solving. Yeah. For me, it was never about, uh, my biggest frustration was people come to me and say, oh, you guys do beautiful work. I found that really frustrating. I know you probably said it. <laughs> you like what you saw, so it connected with you. So that worked. You right. know, it, it was not just purely what it looked like. It was the end result. A lot of there's a lot of work that goes into make creating that reaction. Yeah. In a way, everything that we do, um, I mean, everything we do is designed to make a connection. And, and this and is I guess it always has been in the world. Right? And I think that's something. I mean, that really goes to the essence of this. I would say very useful frame of thinking that even non-designers need to embrace, which is how do you how do you put the work in in understanding what really just 
drives human response, human need, humanity. Mm. And this is sort of contained in this idea of, you know, human-centered design. Yeah. Can, can you talk a bit about that and, and I guess how your practice uses it and, and I guess what its future might look like? Yeah, what I was going to touch on too was it's around, I don't know, I'm kind of, um, it's, it's, it's linked, it's related, is, um, Christ, I just forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, but actually, no, I know what it was. Okay, so what it is, is that for a lot of designers out there, a lot of designers design for their clients, for their clients being the ones that they want approval from. So the client, they want the client to be happy with what they've done. And often, although they say they're working on you know, designing for the end user, the real focus has been today up until to, you know recently around kind of this new kind of revelation of like oh customer journey customer experiences the end user and all that kind of stuff is that we have been predominantly designing for ourselves designing for our peers hmm. and designing for the marketing director whoever is a commission us so with a bigger focus on um, focusing on customer experiences and designing experiences no matter whether digital, physical, etc., is the shift to understand the end user, understand how they think, understand what they want, understand what would, how, what would, what do they need in their world, or what will engage with them in a way that they're kind of connected with. So it's becoming far more of an engagement in the ultimate end user of the yeah of the product. I mean, it's not, it kind of feels like going duh. Of course, you know, and probably, you know, obviously, you know, fast consumer goods organizations would, the cokes of this world would have done that way, way back. Yeah. They're always focusing on the customer, I hope, I think. Um, and it's kind of like the rest of the world just recently caught up to that and going, oh, hang on. Yeah. It's about customer experiences. But how do you, how do you authentically capture that? I mean, I've, back when I was, you know, working in the media business, I, I, I sat through, meetings with the design agency where they were talking about the voice of the consumer and it would basically be six out of context probably fake quotes on a on a powerpoint yeah, exactly. slide right? like and it just didn't feel like that it just didn't feel like it was real I'm not grounded in anything no and as i say we got away with that for years yeah. long, long <laughs> but 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 now if there's if there's if there's in a database somewhere millions of points of data with actually the answer in it yeah prove it prove it show me don't make statements you can't you can't you can't can approve that are actually legit. Show me the data. Show me the information that, that I can. Um, it makes it believable. Mm. There's a lot at stake. There's a lot at stake of getting it wrong. A lot of stake of getting it. You know. There's a lot of advantage of getting it right. What organization? And this is some. I think I said to my guys is like, if this was your business and you were coming to commission us, would you base your business success on a designer's gut feeling? You know. I think in the past we would have done. I think some people still do. But today, fuck, I'm going to go, hmm. I need to be really, really sure that what you're recommending is going to help transform my business. It's going to help uh, me to, to beyond my expectations. You know, I mean, there's, who would say, I come to you because I want you, you're good at making things look nice or you're good at making... You know, you're good at typography. You know, your type type's beautiful. You know, or I love your color palette that you use, or whatever it might be. You know, no, who's? I mean, yeah, art organizations possibly, but businesses who are in the business of connecting with people, 
who have got a lot at stake financially. They got a you know they got a lot of you know reason to get it righter than right. Who is going to come to you and, and take a take a gamble? This is a this is a really tricky issue though because you've got on one end of the spectrum someone like Amazon or Google who you know they'll run A/B tests on whether to change a font on a page or move a button in a different spot. You know so they'll run yeah. two versions and whichever sells more lawnmowers they'll run with. Then you've got the apples of the world who have these super secret R and D organizations and that classic Steve Jobs quote which was people don't know what they want they'll they'll know what they want when I show it to them. You know, so like we're, I mean, ultimately, mm. uh, if you're totally ruled by the crowd, you don't necessarily, people don't necessarily have a frame of reference if you ask them what they want. But maybe, maybe what they want is implicit in their behavior in ways that they can't express. Yeah. I mean, I think something that frustrated me a lot over the years is advertising companies saying that, you know, when they present to clients, we take risks. We, we're all about, we're only working clients who are prepared to take risks. Well, what, a, what, what does that mean? There's like, is that stupid? It means we're only taking work that will win us awards. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're only, we only work with clients that allow us to do completely what we want to do without your engagement, without your involvement, whether it works or not in the market. So I think that, I mean, those, I think those days have shifted big time yeah. and changed. So I think, I don't think that, I think that the designers have, and it's not like, I don't believe, I think, but I believe that everybody in this world is creative. I believe everybody in this world could be a designer. I just think something that you learn and it's something that you can, you know, through anything, practicing anything you could be good at, you know? Um, some are, for whatever reason, through their upbringing, have, are kind of, you know, are better at than others. Um, maybe it's because they've been in a certain environment that's allowed them to be totally uh, free to think and to play and to, to explore. Others have been controlled and, and manipulated and just kind of, you know, make and do. But if you're gonna coach a leader to be more like a designer in the way they approach the world and the problems that they face, what advice would you give them? Well, that's probably what I'm doing, I'm thinking. So I'm thinking, I don't have an answer for everything. I mean, a lot of people who are in business think they have, they have, they have, think they have to have an answer for everything and have mm. an immediate response or they're exposed. I think that I am incredibly naive. I mean, I verge on feeling like I'm stupid a lot of the time. Is that the answer actually? I think it is. I mean, for, I mean, for, no, for, no, no, for no. me it works. Well, well, I, have, I, like, I mean, psychologists low... call this the naive mind. Mm. I mean, this is the power that children have. Yeah, I mean, it is a childlike. For me, it's like the less I know, the better. Mm. Because I mean, the starting point is that I don't go, if I'm about, I just, you know, we branded a gym recently and I'm about to do another gym. I don't go, oh yeah, yeah. And second one, I don't go, oh yeah, yeah, I know what to do. It's another gym. We've done it before last week. Uh, this is what we're going to do. This is the answer and let's create the same thing. I go, okay, fuck, a new gym. Well, what's the difference with this one? What's, what is the point of difference? You know, location, the training, the, the schedule, the systems, the brand, the name, the kind of demographic, etc. Like it's all brand new again. It might be a gym, but it's a new gym. And I'm not interested in just rolling out. Um, I'm not interested in just kind of doing the same thing over and over and over again. Although I like, I like learning from those experiences, but I also like coming from, from a state of mind of being, you know, this is the first thing I've ever seen in my life. Wow, I'm in awe of it. I'm fascinated by it. And what I love is taking that 
blank page or that opportunity or a shell of a space and a kind of a, a seed of an idea that a client's come to me with. And in I know that in in a month's time, in, in two months' time, three months' time, it's going to be something that exists in this world. So you're taking something which is doesn't exist, it's a kind of an initial idea, and you're creating something that's a living entity in the world that people are going to engage with. And that's phenomenally exciting. I get excited about what it could be. You know, what if it could be this? What if it could be that? Um, and coming at it from a perspective of uh, not about what's trend in trend out there in the world, not looking for inspiration from what other people have done, but actually delving into the uniqueness of that opportunity and finding out that, that guy who owns this new gym is a different guy to the guy who owns the other gym. It is a very different chemistry, very different age, very different ambitions, very different experiences. Now I want to know, for me to do my job well, I really need to spend my time with this blank slate, with the kind of sort of building up an understanding of his desires and his ambitions. And I, my job is to help him realize that. You know, my job is to help piece it all together and do something which he can't do. He's got an idea for a business and understands what the financial repercussions of that are, what his goals are, but he doesn't know how to bring it to life. He doesn't know how to make it exist in the real world. He doesn't know how to make it, a, you know, he has no idea what name. He's got a couple of names he's thinking about. Um, no, but, but it's... And, and one might be the name. I don't know, but I'm open to that, you know? I like, yeah. I'm really excited about that. I'm excited about it. It gives me goosebumps even talking about it because <laughs> I know when, when we get to that point with that client, in every single meeting, it gives me those kind of, that feeling of, you know, they're coming, bring something to reality and homing in on something that you, in a way, in your mind, see... This, this is the beauty of, I, I love this, this is like dreaming. Is it each day goes by uh, when I'm engaged in a project, um, and it can happen really quickly, it can happen within, within a second of someone saying, I gotta, calls me up or email me and say, I got a, a, an opportunity for you. And it's, and it's around this area, bang, sometimes I have an idea. And sometimes that idea within seconds is the idea we end up doing. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.